On today's episode, my good friend Jonathan Olivo returns to the podcast and we continue our discussion about the strikes that are happening in Hollywood before we shift to our main topic of the episode, which in this case is true stories. And here we talk about good practices and bad practices. Let's talk for a minute. For today's episode, I got my friend Jonathan Olivo back. Jonathan, how you doing, man? I'm doing really good. Really, really good. How you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I appreciate you taking the time to come back on the, the podcast again. Just a little refresher for listeners. The last time that we talked together on the show, it was episode 23. This is episode 31. We're recording this today, August 14th, 2023. Episode 23 was posted January 19th of this year. So just, I think, earlier that month we had recorded it. Kind of to segue into what we're going to be talking about today, one of the two topics. We're in a weird place right now because of the situation with the strikes, the 2023 American film industry strikes. I'm choosing not to include the names of movies that are made or distributed by the struck companies. So an awkward Uh thing already is that episode 23 that we covered, it was a movie by one of these struck companies. You and I had said, you know, we we can mention the names of the companies, we just can't go into the film. It was a it was a 20th Century Studios movie, a big blockbuster film. It was an event film, but it's it's a weird thing now because here's where we are today. So again, we're recording this August 14th, 2023. The WGA strike between the WGA and the AMPTP, which represents all the studios, do you know when that strike launched? I want to say around June, it feels like, but I could be wrong. It's been a yeah. while. No, you're close. It was um, it was May second of this year. So we are now on day 104. So pretty much, we're at a point of about three and a half months. This is already longer than when the 2007 to 2008 writer strike happened. And I have actually here the dates for that too. Yeah, the the writer strike of 2007. It started November 5th of 2007 and went until February 12th of 2008. Another thing I didn't realize with that strike is that, you know, Netflix didn't start their streaming service till January of 2007. So that issue, that past strike was not even really about streaming back then. They were still figuring, it was still DVD stuff and other uh, other residual um, related information. New media was becoming an issue because of the internet, but not quite yet streaming because all these platforms weren't there yet. And more recently, what's the other strike that we're dealing with? Sad. Screen Actors Guild, man. It's a little bit more recent. That one is July 14th when that one kicked off. We are now on day 31. We're about a month into that right now. Something that I, I, I want to bring up, listeners who have heard the previous episode, I'm assuming they're going to think maybe I've changed my mind. It's not that I've changed my mind, but I've listened to more points of view on this since that episode. And now I feel like there are some other sides of this to consider. Here's what I have. I, I wrote that I think this strike is more complicated because of how the nature of entertainment has changed and because of how it has evolved with technology, really meaning distribution. And this is very similar to when the strike of the 1960s happened. This is, that's the last time the WGA and the Actors Union, Screen Actors Guild, went on strike with the AMPTP because you went from movies to now having television. With the television model, there weren't residuals yet. So how is it going to work if, again, a movie was re-aired? Also, there was a scarcity of time and platforms. There were, what, four channels? So when you turn on the TV, if the programmers put something on that channel 
for sure viewers would watch it. It wasn't a question. Now it's a lot more complicated. I feel like there's so much content out there now. It's insane. And it, it, you know, it really is. It, it's almost like, you know, this, this type of situation really could have been seen. I'm sure everybody kind of foresaw it, you know, years ago, because it's like with all of these shows coming out constantly and they're constantly being canceled left and right. You have all of these different streaming services that come and go. We all know that actors and filmmakers and writers aren't getting, you know, they, they can't be getting paid the correct amount to the correlation of the amount of people actually watching. How many people watch a certain show or movie and how long does that company profit off of it, off of whatever app? You know, you mentioned something recently about the last strike where it involved DVD sales and things like that, you know. This, Mm. you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't fathom that, you know, a show, every show that we could imagine would be on our fingertips. What what changed for me where I see now kind of both sides have a little bit of a point from the actor's side and the, the actor's union and the writer's union. One thing which they really do have a point with, I think, is that there needs to be transparency with the performance of the work. If some version of the current model with residuals is going to continue, there needs to be a metric that everyone can see. There was Nielsen ratings that were created and people at least yep. had a way to know how was something performing. Yeah. Um, but with Netflix, or with Apple TV+, Plus, with Amazon, any of these services, there's no transparency. We'll hear words like billion minutes watched of um, whatever, House of Cards <laughs> or, or Stranger Things. Right. But what does that mean? Like billion minutes of how many people, there's no sample that everyone agrees on, you know, no modeling yeah. system that really works. However, there's another side, you know, too, which is a big issue. And I think that's why this this is a significant point right now in the entertainment industry. And this is the side of the studios that I can understand as well. It's that there is far more risk for companies to produce content. The reason why, and this is the argument I keep hearing, and I really think it's a valid point, the fight for eyeballs and for the attention is much harder now because it's not just a series programming. It's not just movies. It's everything that people can use to take up their time. That can be short form content from TikTok to Twitch to YouTube. Like right now, you know, we're doing this as a podcast, listening to podcasts, anything you are using to take up your time. The fact that there is very little cost to produce content like this, but at the same time, when you want to make it into a business and you're monetizing it for all parties involved, it's way more difficult. Residuals, they're not going away, but I think it's going to adapt to the times. I hope so. You and I, we know people who work in this industry, they work very hard and it's frustrating because they have points. The studios are fighting with they have points. And by the way, I'm not trying to be diplomatic to be Switzerland here and not take a side. I still think that the talent from the writers, the actors, they should be taken care of. Their concerns about making enough to get covered by healthcare. You know, SAG, you're, they said, right, um, right. what is it, 80% of the union d- doesn't make enough, the 26000 which is the minimum to make to be covered by their basic healthcare insurance. I can't believe it's like that. Right. And, and you know, for people that um, are so removed from that industry you know so many people just believe that everybody who work in any capacity in filmmaking or tv you know like like people are like what are you complaining about like it's not a big deal and of course you know i'm i'm personally not involved myself well literally 
in either of those guilds. Um, but, you know, we both understand and are well aware that these people aren't being able to afford simple things that the normal person struggles. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's really insane when you really think about it, because 20 years ago, you didn't think like that. But nowadays, it's like you watch someone on TV or in a movie and you might just assume, oh, they're set. You know, they're set. They're set for life. And yeah. that's very, that's not the case at all, you know? Right. Yeah. It's definitely very much appreciated to see the high profile people that are out there now on the picket lines that are helping a lot of their fellow union members to get this issue out there and heard. They know what it was like when they were out there starting. A lot of them, they're not under any obligation to contribute, but they've uh -huh. contributed. They've contributed to the Entertainment Emergency Fund through both unions. It, I cannot agree with you more that it, it makes me so mad. And there are a lot of people I've heard say this, saying that like, oh, you know, just these millionaires, they're, they're just, you know, they're complaining about not making enough money or the other one too. Well, you know what? Only those who are talented deserve the, you know, to become millionaires. What? I'm like, what? okay, I think like anything, the market will decide. But if you put in the work, there is a minimum, whether it's salary, support, healthcare, anything else is crap. I don't want to hear that bullshit for one second that just, oh, if you're not good enough, then, then beat it. If they don't get callbacks, if something doesn't perform well, things will work themselves out. And that could be sad and brutal, but that, that's part of the business. I get that. But just saying that they don't deserve it, even if they've put in the work, the minimum, no, that's yeah. not acceptable at all. But the part where I was mentioning before that I feel like these two sides, the unions on one side, AMPTP on the other, it's the wrong argument they're having right now. In fact, they're on the same side with some exceptions, but they're on the same side. And a group that they have to worry about more is tech because tech is more integrated into entertainment now. It's it's the main mode of distribution. There's an example I really enjoyed. I'm going to recommend, Jonathan, to you and to all listeners, go look on the website adweek.com and do a search for New York Times AI Terms of Service. What the New York Times have done is they've updated their terms of service so that groups like OpenAI with ChatGPT they can't just scrape their articles and images and whatever. If they want to utilize it, even for ChatGPT, they have to license it. They have to monetize it like right. anything else. That, I think, is brilliant. And New York Times, they've, I think, also been talking with other publishers. So they're now getting companies like OpenAI or any other tech that's out there that likes to use already created content and say, you want to use it? Okay, cool. But you have to compensate us and the people who made it. Uh -huh. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of the same thing. Like the actors are being smart about this now also and saying, hey, you want to use us? You can't just scan us one time and background actors. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, no, no, definitely. There was there was some actor recently who was, I forget if it was for a Star Wars movie or Lord of the Rings, but they were like, oh yeah, 10 years ago I was scanned once and I was used, I, I could be reiterating this completely wrong, but they were used for multiple different projects um, mm -hmm. that they weren't really made w well aware about, which is, you know, it's just Back then, I guess it wasn't something people really thought about because it, the technology wasn't there. And now that we're here, especially like, you know, what you mentioned with chat GPT and stuff, I'm really glad that certain sources are saying, you know, we have to be compensated for it. You had mentioned examples of actors who had talked about this experience. There's two interesting ones that, that I heard about recently. One was Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They had been background actors, extras in Field of Dreams. And I didn't know her. 
Damon in an interview was saying, it's scary to think that had this technology been around, they could have just scanned us that one time and we wouldn't have had the opportunity to then be called back to other opportunities, to other gigs, which eventually right. let, you know, which got us the opportunity to make Goodwill Hunting and now the careers that, that these guys have had. Um, by the way, another issue like this would be also the visual effects workers. Did you see that some Marvel visual effects workers have now uh, filed to unionize? I'm sure you and I can think of several different times that visual effects workers and companies have been screwed over again and again. It's worse than even like a lot of the gig economy where you're competing for the lowest price to work. Life of Pi. Um, oh, yeah. A one in 2012, I think it was 12 or 13 for Best Picture. The same night or a day or two later, the effects house went out of business. But I want to see if we can switch to our second topic. Yeah, well. And this is, some, this is something I, I wanted to talk about for a while. True stories. <laughs> In this case, I'm talking about when you have a real person, real event, company, or movement that is um, made into the content that we watch. There are good practices and bad practices. What I like to do is to kind of go over good and bad. And for each of those, like I'll tell you what I think are some good practices. You please tell me what you think are some good practices. And then the same thing for bad practices. And then the part after that is what is something that you would like to see adapted that hasn't Absolutely. been adapted? That, that, well, that either hasn't been adapted yet, or maybe there's another version of it you'd like to see adapted. Yes. And when we get to that point, mine is very, very strange. And uh, that's all. It's not well, really even an event, but I think it would be a cool movie. But anyway, please, do you want to start us off? Uh, well, let's, let's not lose this idea while we have it fresh in our minds. So you go first, and I'll, I'll have a few follow-up questions for that. Okay. So this this is my pitch for a very strange movie that uh, it's not even an, an adaption of something that has happened. It's a very small event that I would love to see portrayed on screen. And that is, I would like to see a movie about Elon Musk just messing up Twitter. Okay. And that that first two months of when he purchased it, when it was going through its changes, and how he kind of embarrassed himself on different social media platforms. Now, I feel like uh, I'm not here to say, I know there's going to be a lot of people who might be upset at that, but this is just my take, and I would love to have it be like a character piece of just a man whose ego is too big for himself and is just constantly getting a reality check. Okay, and, and and okay. So a couple of follow up questions to that. Um, format would would it be a movie or a series? It would be a film, and it would film. be similar to Jobs. Uh, oh wait, well, no, no, no. To, we, we, I mean, yeah, okay. We, 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 to, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the Steve Jobs movie with uh, directed by Danny Boyle, where it would basically just be him in three different settings, mm -hmm. um, and we would basically just follow him very stressed out and mm -hmm. trying to figure this out. For tone, I'm going to ask you about uh, writer and director. So, would you want Danny Boyle to to write and direct, or or do you have, do you have a specific writer I think director? Danny, I think Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin would kill it. Mm -hmm. The writer director okay. combo. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, and I would cast. Ooh, that's how I was going to yes. ask. Who are you going to who are you, who are you gonna cast? This is going to be very strange. Uh, I would cast Paul Dano. Paul Dano. Okay, Paul Dano would yeah. need to gain some weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he would. He would need to. I mean, not to the extent of of this, but kind of. He would need to kind of pull a Christian Bale playing Dick Cheney kind of weight right. gain type of thing. By the way, Christian Bale has gone up and down with weight so much as an actor, which is incredible. He definitely takes his craft seriously, but I just have to imagine that cannot be good for his heart. I'm just saying, like uh, to go. Oh no, yeah, yeah. It's a shock so, to your system. Yeah, to constantly go up and down, up and down. 
What about you? The one that, that I want, there has been a version of this already, but it's not the version that we were all promised. And I am so anxious on this. The company Theranos that was started oh, yeah. by Elizabeth Holmes, right? So the story of Elizabeth Holmes, Sonny Balwani, the two of them running Theranos, it's such a epic story. It would be the version that was made into the novel Bad Blood, which was written by John Carreyrou, who was the Wall Street Journal from 2015 for the next few years, who just covered the story. I'm telling you, man, there is so much to unpack. That book, I couldn't put it down until I was done. Um, wow. Even the kind of peripheral characters are really interesting. Here's the version that we were originally promised, and we haven't seen yet, and I think that this version might be dead, but I hope there is a way to revive it. So you know who optioned the book was Adam McKay, who made, you know, uh, oh, the nice. big, made the big short, yeah. right? They cast Jennifer Lawrence to play Elizabeth Holmes. Bang. I just thought that's brilliant. She will do an amazing job. This is an actor who has so much range. Uh, I love that she does comedies, dramas, especially the the movies with her that I think about are the ones by David O. Russell. Yeah, yeah, um, I like Silver Linings Playbook. And, her and, and that, uh, yeah. American Hustle, you know, like just uh, uh -huh. both were, you know, were, were so great. But then it didn't go anywhere, unfortunately, because of the other version that came out. That one was a, a series version. Right, uh, right. The actress won an Emmy or Golden Globe and Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. The story didn't nearly cover the kind of potential that it could have, like with the drama. It's an insane story. It's one of those books where I really don't think you can cut anything out. In fact, yeah. in fact, that even though Adam McKay optioned it, I was hoping that he would think, okay, maybe this shouldn't be a movie, but it should be a series. Because then we can have a limited series, two seasons maybe, however long we need to tell the whole story. Right. And Adam McKay would, would write and direct. Um, nice. I still think Jennifer Lawrence would play Elizabeth Holmes. So <laughs> that would cover your lead for sure. Let's go first to good practices, then bad practices. Good practices, I think, are when you focus, if you're going to tell a true story, please don't cover from inception to death of something that much of the story. Right. Really, I hope you focus. Even if you're telling a biography movie, and th this, this is you know what I meant by one of my all-time favorite directors, Clint Eastwood, is not immune to this. He's made several biopic movies. Now, most of them I've liked, but there was one in particular with Leonardo DiCaprio in the lead role. He played a certain key figure in the Justice Department. Um, and oh, yes. The movie was a mess. It's just kind of like trying to cover everything. But yeah. it, but it, it ended up being a mess really about nothing in a lot of ways. Right. You know, you know, biopics or movies about companies shouldn't be a brochure of just information hmm. and trying to cover it. Yeah. I know what movie you're talking about. I haven't seen it. Hmm. Um, but I guess that that is a that is a problem that I think a lot of these film's face is the filmmakers wanting to just cover so much information and they might think that the amount of information they put in automatically grants it as a film worth seeing. I'll give mm. an example. There's a movie about Queen that came out a couple years ago or not right. about Queen, about Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a fine movie. I, I saw it a few times because I was honestly, I was bored that December. Yeah. Uh, but it really does try to cover that man's life from when he's 20, maybe even footage when he's a kid up until his last performance. Um, I know we're talking about people and companies, mm -hmm. but a movie that I already brought up that I think really breaks away from that formula and that I really enjoy is the Steve Jobs 
jobs. And mm-hmm. the reason why, you know, a, a good comparison as to a version that did it wrong is Ashton Kutcher starred in one right. a few years before that came out. And that is that, like, that's almost comparable to the Weird Al movie, which I haven't even seen. Yeah. But Funnier or Die created, I think, a spoof of the Steve Jobs movie with Justin Long. Because right. it was so bad. I think that's what happened. You know, I love movies that are based off of real events or people that just, there is no formula to them. It's just, hmm. here's them at an event or here's them at their best or their worst. That's what I enjoy. I, I really hate these movies that are just beat by beat by beat by beat by beat. So I, I, you know, I mentioned like the Ava DuVernay one from the civil rights movement. Would in 65, the march in Alabama be successfully pulled off and it would talk on the central figures, but it didn't do a whole backstory on each of them. It, it hinted at some of the things that they were dealing with, some of their own shortcomings as people. It kept that whole thing of, are we going to be able to succeed with this? Will we survive? You mm-hmm. know, will leadership in the country do anything about this? Will people uh, be supportive? Like it was, and it was brutal, absolutely brutal. Very well done movie. Another example, and I feel like I kind of I, w- I want to redeem this guy after uh, putting Mr. Eastwood through the ringer. One that one that I enjoyed very much, and I, and this one I get a little bit of pushback from some friends on, is the one about the pilot who had to make an emergency landing in the Hudson River. And and that one was very focused on... The, the movie starts after it's already happened. And then we go into flashbacks. Oh. And we, 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 little by little through the investigation, try to answer the question that the pilot's asking himself. Did I make the right decision? Did I put everyone's life at risk? You felt the stakes the entire time. The pilot almost didn't care if the um, NTSB was going to find him guilty of something or not. He was already trying himself. He's like, did I put everyone's life needlessly at risk? Mm-hmm. You know yeah. That kind of focus, I, I just thought was so great. That's um, No, no, no. I, I, think, I think you really hit, hit the nail on the head that, you know, all these movies have to do, I think, is really just have us care for the character outside of what the actual event is right mm-hmm. because like even if that wasn't a true story that sounds like an interesting film regardless the um, three examples of using what you're saying that when it's true and it's well done you care about it more of like if it starts to do that but then drops the ball along the way right it can be frustrating sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and in the, this case here are the three examples that i want to talk about there was a movie that came out last year that was about two New York Times reporters who mm-hmm. pursued the story against Harvey Weinstein. Very well acted, very well written and directed. But somewhere along the way, it just felt like it didn't have a central message or yeah, like, no. what is this? Yes, you're investigating him and that's a big part of it. But because we already know a lot of the information, there has to be a little bit more to it. That one really frustrated me because I felt like it just kind of started in the middle of something mm-hmm. and just stopped. Like the thing I love about Aaron Sorkin movies, no matter what the movie is about, there's always two characters where there's a conflict between the two of them. And it's, is one losing respect for the other or is one gaining respect for the other? That applies to every one of the movies he's directed and all of the movies he's written as well too. Mm -hmm. The second example of something that didn't work very well, there was a movie that also came out last year that was about the kids in Thailand who were stuck in the cave. Um, (laughs) There were soccer players and Ron Howard directed that one. It had Viggo Mortensen and Colin Farrell and Joel Edgerton. All amazing. Absolutely amazing in that movie. But again, there was not a driving thing in that story. Like I, I loved it all the way to the end. And the last one, I'm sorry, man, but actually it is the one you mentioned. It's, oh. It's, it's, it's Steve Jobs. and um, Michael Fassbender. Yes, yes. That oh, was okay. 
here's the thing. I have rewatched that one multiple times because of Aaron Sorkin Ow. and Danny Boyle too. But the thing with, with Steve Jobs was that the ending where he's talking to his daughter in the parking lot, it wasn't really clear throughout the movie that the relationship that's being focused on is Steve Jobs and his daughter. Towards the end, it does that yeah. more. But in the beginning, it's not really there. For a few years, I was like, what is it about this movie that to me feels incomplete or frustrating? Or the th why is the third act pissed me off so much? And it was because of that. I realized, had I just had a better understanding that it's not about Jobs and Wozniak, it's not about right. Fassbender and Kate Winslet, it's, it's about him and his daughter. So, yeah, um, yeah. And again, these are movies. Anyone who says, you know, like, uh, what's his name? Uh... Walt Mossberg wanted to say after he saw the movie, this isn't the Steve Jobs I know and uh, this is bullshit. Wait, who said that? Walt, Walt Mossberg, he's a, he's a tech reviewer, used to work for Wall Street Journal and then created his own tech reviewing company. Um, Interesting. And he actually worked with Kara Swisher. He, actually, Kara Swisher was one oh. of his partners. They, they were partners and created a tech review site called Recode together too. Mossberg yes, said- okay. No, just to, just, I, I do, I am familiar a little bit with, with her. To an extent, I have seen videos now that you tell me about her. I do, I do remember her a little. She was previewed on the comedy series Silicon Valley. But Mossberg was saying, this Steve Jobs movie, this is not the Steve Jobs I know. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, no shit, it's a movie. They're taking dramatic license. Right. I even love, I even love it where Aaron Sorkin says, not for that movie, but for the other one about the other network that Sorkin wrote about. He has a line of dialogue in there where the founder character is talking towards a college board because he's, he's being accused of violating some privacy. Mm -hmm. And he says, that's not what really happened. Sorkin kept throwing that line in the movie because he's trying to emphasize that this is a movie. We are right. It's we're taking creative license here. I get really annoyed with that. By, by the way, even these movies where I'm like, as a whole, I think maybe they don't work. I still rewatch them because they have some really great rewatchable parts. Like I will rewatch the one about the kids stuck in the caves. I have rewatched the um, Steve Jobs movie. It's incredible how they made it. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know. It's still, it, it has that issue where it just drops something at the end. You know, let's go back to Aaron Sorkin again for a second. Mm -hmm. There's a movie of his that I've argued with some friends before, the one about the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. And there is a certain trial and there is, I think, oh. seven individuals who are on trial there because they're accused of causing a big riot in the park. What I love about that movie is that it's about two of the supporters who are on trial, who at the beginning of the movie, it's kind of shown that they hate each other or just really disagree with, with each other's approaches. But the whole movie really is about how they're learning to respect each other and how actually they kind of need each other to make this campaign more successful. Mm -hmm. You know, and, it, and it's not even just about the campaign. It's just about them becoming friends. Yeah. So I will stand by that. I will always fight and defend this movie. I, I absolutely agree. The thing that it comes down to is the good versions of all of these movies basically use that event as a backdrop to tell a more personal story, mm -hmm. right? Like, like the social network, Andrew Garfield and Jesse Eisenberg are the most interesting things in that movie. Mm -hmm. And it's their, it's their relationship and how Right. They uh, they bounce off of each other and and you know how they betray each other and I don't even care what that movie's literally about I just love the drama between them two. You can always count on Sorkin to have two elements in his movies: the dynamic between two people as one thing, like a, either a friendship or two people either coming together closer or starting to hate each other. And then the other thing is put it in a legal setting. You know, you know what I'd like to see for this Theranos movie because again a big part of it is the legal. 
I would love to see Sorkin write it, but not direct it. He's a great director, don't get me wrong. But I kind of want, like when there was that movie about the network where he was the writer and Fincher was the director, mm -hmm. you know, I felt, I felt that combination was really electric. So maybe either it could be, again, Fincher and Sorkin, or what I think would be really exciting to see, I don't know if these two personalities could work together, Sorkin and Scorsese. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because there are also some mob intense like scenes uh, in the book. Let me just give you one. There's a part where Holmes gets the entire staff to come around. They talk and she holds up the article from John Carreyrou as he's saying all these things like Theranos is lying, they've broken the law, all of that. So she just holds it up and starts chanting. The author's name is John Carreyrou. So she says, fuck you, Carreyrou. But repeatedly, fuck you, Carreyrou, fuck you, Carreyrou. Everyone gets into it. Everyone gets super animated. And it feels like a scene out of Wolf of Wall Street. I club. <laughs> yeah. And immediately I'm like, okay, if Adam McKay doesn't want to direct this, Scorsese should yeah no but. yeah i think that's a great combination that i i don't think we'll ever see in our lifetime but who knows there's been stranger combinations but no that would definitely be an awesome project for them to collaborate on there have definitely always been stranger things my friend for sure today we've talked about the strikes we're well into both strikes right now what we're going to see yeah where that's we're, we're going to see where that's going to progress tomorrow they're having their next meeting tomorrow august 15th before we go one last question please do you have a guess as to when each of these strikes will wrap? No, because I, like you said, you know, we're on record now for this being one of the longer strikes yeah. that the WGA or Green Actors Guild has gone on for. I have no idea, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes until next year at this point. Initially, I would have thought with no other interference from any other outside groups other than just the unions and the studios that this would go into next year, like what you yeah. said. However, this being 2023 and next year being an election year, I don't think it's going to last that long. I think there will be considerable pressure, first from the governor, Gavin Newsom, and then from the federal government too, because I don't think any of these public officials want this around, especially actually more than even the governor. I think the president doesn't want to have this because President Biden's always been a guy about uh, labor issues, and he's going to want to squash this soon. Yeah. Good point. Man, hey, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast today, my friend. We got to do this again soon, okay? Sure, thank you very much for having me, man. It was awesome last time. It was awesome this time. I always enjoy hearing your perspective on films, the state of the world right now in media. <laughs> I love coming here and I love listening to this. So thank you, my friend. We'll definitely do this again soon. And to all of you out there, thank you for listening.